This week on the Saber.com podcast, we look at Virginia football's latest win against Louisville, provide a recruiting update, pick superlatives for the Virginia basketball team, and discuss the new album from ACDC. Let's go. The online source for the serious Wahoo fan, thesaber.com. All right, well, here we go. Another edition of the Saber.com podcast. It's Jeff Sweatman, your host. We'll talk a little ACDC later on in the program for our music segment as we turn the tables each week. And uh, the sports guys ask me some music questions. But uh, we need to start off with first things first. You know, there isn't a separate column for ugly wins versus pretty wins. They're just wins. Just win, baby. And uh, <laughs> wasn't the prettiest game in the world, but another uh, victory for the Who's. Against Louisville, of course, and uh, Bronco Mendenhall says the simplest analysis is having Brennan Armstrong available consistently and executing better. So we'll bring in our experts here to agree or disagree with that assessment. Chris Wright and Chris Horn from thesaber.com. Welcome, gentlemen. And who wants to take that first? Chris Wright, how about you? Brennan Armstrong has improved his play. We've said that a lot in the last couple of weeks, that he's taken better care of the football. Decisions have been better. Yes, he still has had the one interception per week against Louisville and North Carolina, but it hasn't been as risky or as often when it was several interceptions per game early on. And now that he's getting that rhythm and routine of playing regularly and and practicing regularly and all those things since coming back from the concussion, his play has improved. And because his play improving directly impacts turnovers, which has been the the story of the season um, in terms of the wins versus the losses, I, I think that's fair to simplify it down that much. Yeah, I think he's getting uh, – he seems to be getting comfortable. And Coach Mendenhall talks a lot about finding an identity. And I think the offense seems to be settling in to kind of leaning a little bit more on the run, which I think we've seen in the play calling the past several weeks, especially against UNC and Louisville, where they clearly favor the run over the pass. So they're not putting too much on uh, Brennan's plate. Yeah, I think he just seems more comfortable since he, since coming back from the concussion. He's making better decisions. Yeah, he has had the occasional uh, poor throw that we saw against North Carolina and again against uh, Louisville, but not they aren't having the back-breaking turnovers uh, that they had earlier in the year. And then conversely, the defense is kind of starting to pick things up on that end as well. So I think, again, I think that the, I think comfortable is the word I would use for the offense. They seem to be kind of maybe finding their niche with, um, again, I think first and foremost, the running game has been has been uh, going pretty well. And then Brennan Armstrong in the passing game is kind of settling in as well. Not necessarily lighting the world on fire, but they're making the plays that they need to make and uh, and doing pretty well. That was kind of a back-and-forth game, you know, 7-3 um, to three with only a, a defensive touchdown there. The pick six by Noah Taylor, 85-yard interception return in the first quarter for the Hoos. So they led 7-3 to three after one. It was 14-10 uh, to 10 at halftime. Teams traded touchdowns in the third quarter, but then uh, UVA kind of pulled away. And uh, on the strength, uh, in a lot of ways, of the defense um, making some big plays in that fourth quarter. But uh, Armstrong seemed to get stronger as the game went on. And uh, it was interesting. I was listening to the radio broadcast, just driving to get a pizza for dinner in the third quarter. So I missed all of the third quarter visually, but the uh, the radio team for the Who's was was getting on him uh, a little bit, Armstrong, for being maybe a little tentative or not really stepping into his throws. And that might have just been uh, for a drive or two there. But uh, did you guys notice that? Or was that more – would you guys attribute that more to his being more careful and, and trying to avoid those those turnovers? Obviously, the one with Paul Jan getting hit at the one-yard line, that 
you, the whole game, I was just so worried that that was going to be the one to come back and bite us. But they ended up defense really stepping up and uh, the offense kind of helping to put the, the game away there in the fourth quarter. What, what did you guys see there in terms of Armstrong's, I don't know, confidence or were there moments in the game there? Obviously, every quarterback, I guess, has some of those. But uh, what do you think, Chris Horn? Well, I think that it's definitely a fine line as far as you don't want to be too careful and, and be thinking too much and be too quick to to run the football. You know, there were occasional maybe um, some indecisiveness maybe on Armstrong's part, but I think overall, you know, he seems to be, again, coming through with, with the big play when they need it. The 29-yard pass to Billy Kemp comes to mind in the fourth quarter on a third nine play when UVA was leading by just seven points, and they were able to, to capitalize on that. You know, so I think, yeah, he's he's making the plays they need to make. And, again, I'm not – you know, I think, uh, you know, he is running fairly quickly on, on occasion. But, again, then, then there are other times where he looks extremely confident with his throws. So, maybe it's just something that he sees and that he feels like is a better – better choice for him to run so I think he is kind of calming down I don't necessarily agree that he's being overly tentative at this point I think it's still kind of a work in progress but I think he's doing doing just fine you know that pass to Kemp was a was a bubble screen tunnel screen type of deal that that Jeff hates but every time they run it it works so my advice right now would be anytime you feel like calling an end around to Tavares Kelly immediately change your call to a tunnel screen to Kemp instead <laughs> like just automatically go oh I want I think I want to try to mix it up here and I want to immediately call the tunnel screen it will get you four or five yards throw in the audible for Armstrong <laughs> every well, single time yeah no, I agree I mean, and speaking I mean speaking of that play it kind of looked like now I may be wrong but that Armstrong went right he looked right and he ended up coming back left to Kemp and now Kemp said that kind of that took a long time to materialize but it almost, to me, looked like maybe Armstrong kind of was bluffing a little bit to the right and then came – because he came back left really quickly and hit Kemp, hit Kemp right where it needed to be for him to take off and, and run. Um, again, he, he's making plays like that. I don't know if that's – again, I don't know if that's just not thinking and, and just letting it rip and stuff like that or what. But, he, you know, he's, he's coming through when he needs to. Well, and here's uh, my token dumb guy question of the week for you guys. Uh, just hearing you talk about this stuff. So there was some post-game analysis, and we've already commented on this in previous episodes from the ACC Network guys about just modern, not UVA specifically, but just modern-day quarterbacking and, and offenses in college football now. And these guys are always in the shotgun. They clap. They don't ever have to. You know, the plays are all called for them. It's all just kind of by the numbers and not a whole lot of freedom necessarily. It's just, you know, a different game than it was maybe even 10 years ago. So how much freedom does Armstrong have within the offense if he sees something? Can, can he audible to, like, what you're talking about there? Yeah, he can. I don't think he can audible to anything he wants, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think it's a, if you see this, then you call this. And that might mean pass to run versus pass to change the formation, run a screen instead of, you know what I mean? I don't think it's a, as wide of an audible range as maybe you're picturing in your head. I heard that from those guys on the ACC network too. So you got Mark Richt, who doesn't even seem like he wants to be there. <laughs> right. right. And you've got EJ Manuel. Now that one yeah. made more sense to me. He played quarterback within the decade, I think. Right. And he's like, well, we just didn't do that. I'm not complaining about it. We just didn't do it. Right. And I don't know. It felt like get off my lawn type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Versus actually analyzing the game. 
are actually, you know, telling us, you know, what teams do week to week that they're always successful at. You know, I, I always turn toward the Seth Greenbergs and the, the Doris Burks and the Hubie Browns that are actually teaching me something right. than the, the guy from up complaining about you being on his porch or whatever. <laughs> well, and why, so why is that? Is it just a function of more speed in the game now? And, and speed is seen as that factor that you can't coach. And if you've got more of it than the other team, then that solves a lot of other issues. Is that the main factor? You, you still obviously have to have size too, <laughs> in some regard. Yeah. That's kind of the easy analysis, I think. <laughs> I mean, to Chris's <laughs> point, I mean, it's not really breaking down, uh, breaking down too much. Um, you know, as far as, I mean, as far as UVA in terms of speed as a team this year, I think they do have trouble with, with matching speed um, in certain areas. I think you saw that with uh, Louisville's quarterback as he was knifing his way through the Virginia defense left and right. However, no, I think it is definitely you know, deeper than that. I don't, I don't think it's just as, as simple as that. UVA is not that far off. I think the answer is RPOs is the difference. Why teams spread it out, stay in the shotgun now. The answer is the, the line can run block <laughs> and you're throwing passes. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's the biggest difference between now and what, what quarterbacks and college teams were doing 10 years ago. There's just more of this, this wide open hybrid kind of offenses. Well, and it's been interesting, too. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest, and you watched Nebraska and Oklahoma and these teams that would run the same plays every week, and no one could stop them. And it was so frustrating as a fan. And, like, I'm trying to root for Mizzou and, you know, my team. And we were trying all these gadget sort of things. And it was like, why can't we just get big, fast guys like they've got? <laughs> and, they seem, and, you know, now we've got a handful of teams that kind of dominate with, with a certain style of play. So it is just sort of a – it does seem to evolve or, or, you know, through time, but, you know, Armstrong, you know, I grew up watching, right? I grew up watching ACC stuff. Yeah. And all I can think of is if Marcus Higgins was 10 years younger, I mean, <laughs> he, he, that dad gum biscuit is one of the names on the, on the message board because Bobby Bowden back from that 2005 game was like, you know, that dad gum number 18, <laughs> because he just made stuff happen. Can you imagine if you spread the field out like it is now running RPOs with Marcus Higgins? Yeah. So, <laughs> Right. In some ways, it's the coaches really more than the players even because you've had players of, you know, high skill level that maybe weren't utilized in, in the right way 20, 30 years ago where now it's like, oh, OK, yeah, let's let the best athletes do their thing. And uh, you've got these these spread offenses and a lot more offense. We can go through the rundown later of the, uh, the ACC. What did the North Carolina quarterback have like 550 some passing yards? <laughs> Against Wake, wow. So, all in all, uh, Armstrong, pretty good line, 15 to 23, 203 yards, uh, 74.1 QBR rating uh, for whatever that's worth. He was, again, the leading rusher for UVA, 15 carries, 60 yards. But I find it interesting. He was averaging four yards a carry. Simpson, also 4.2 yards a carry. 4.0 yards a carry for Talapapa, 4.0 for, uh, for Walker. What did you guys think of Ronnie Walker Jr. in his debut? Yeah, not uh, not a huge sample size, but I think on you know the few carries that he had, I think we saw that you know he's uh, he, he's got pretty good vision, and uh, his first carry was for 11 yards. So and and on that play had some some nice vision, kind of running in traffic to start, and then kind of bouncing it outside. So yeah, but I think with with Ronnie uh, Walker Jr., I think in addition to being a kind of a feel good story, you know, he's uh, you know from Hopewell, Virginia, coming back home, and you know obviously what he went through as far as being eligible to play this year. 
but it adds a, you know, adds another healthy, capable back just, you know, from this, again, small sample size, healthy, capable back for Virginia, uh, which again is relying more on the run, especially in recent weeks with, uh, you know, almost uh, twice the carries as, as passes. So, so I think so far so good. And again, I think it's only going to help, you know, Wayne Tyler Papa is such a bruising back runs with such effort. It's, you know, I think good when you can give him some time uh, to kind of rest up a little bit and, and uh, start to feel better so he can run at top speed. And then you know, I really like what I've seen from Shane Simpson the past uh, past few weeks. He's just such a natural, fluid runner. He's got really good vision and speed. And, you know, he's coming off of a, a serious knee injury last year. So I can imagine with him at being 100%, he looks like certainly a, a, a definite high major FBS running back uh, to me. It would be great if he was coming back next year. I think so he's a guy that I've been – uh, liking a lot as well but yeah you know, again uh, with Ronnie a good guy to add to the mix and look forward to seeing what what else he can do in the coming weeks what was encouraging to me too 31 points for the who's even with those two tough turnovers and no Keaton Thompson do we know if he is going to be available this week yeah, he'll, he'll be available this week barring a change was not out with an injury we don't know specifically why it was out but coach Mendenhall basically said at his presser when he got that question that he expects Keaton to be available the reason he was out is between him and Coach Mendenhall. Um, he did not say the magic phrase, violation of team rules, but that sure sounded like violation of team rules if you're reading between the lines. So, yeah, he should be available barring a setback this week. Uh, Lavelle Davis Jr. back and looked pretty good. Uh, are you guys still impressed with him? Uh, yeah, he looked he looked really good. Um, I think coming back, he looked he looked refreshed, and you know he got that not not so good personal foul taunting penalty. Um, oh, yeah. uh, but on uh, which ended up you know costing EVA some points. They had to settle for a field goal instead of scoring a touchdown. But but overall, it seemed like they you know now maybe they had done this in the uh, earlier in the season with them, but they kind of moved him around more. I thought probably you know he's not while he's got that size. I think as far as you know, at the line of scrimmage when he's out wide, I think he can be pushed around a little bit just because he's got obviously some strength building to do. But no, you know, it still looks fluid. He made some great catch. And, you know, I think he made a few of the best catches he's made all year long against Louisville. Again, I think him and Armstrong seem like they have a good rapport. And I just keep thinking about the future with him. And then if Don, you know, Dontavian Wicks coming back uh, healthy, I think UVA has got a lot of promise at the receiving core in the, in the future years. But uh, yeah, Davis Jr. stepping up, making some plays now when they need him. I, I'm still impressed. <laughs> you know, we said back at that Duke week, can you do something other than jump balls and fades? That teams are going to make you do something else. Well, more in the slot, more inside route. That catch before the Tarzan penalty, you know, beating your own chest penalty. He caught it with his hands. He reached out and caught it while jumping in the air, which was a little different. It was getting into his body more in those early season games too. So you're seeing subtle hints of improvement already. So, yeah, I'm impressed and, and excited what, what's ahead. When he's such a weapon, it seems like they're using him a little bit as a decoy too at times, aren't they, where they've got him on an island where you th think for sure it's going to him and then we did something on the other side of the field. I can't remember the specific instance. I just remember a couple times the announcers pointing that out of like, hey, <laughs> they're, they're using Davis as a decoy. Right, if you put him out wide and they start cheating a safety that way or they – play press coverage over there or, or whatever it basically takes one more person out of the equation altogether so definitely in the red zone but other places too his speed and his height when he comes off the line he's screaming down the seam or he's screaming down the numbers that gets the safety's attention i'm sure it, like and that that opens other things up well we got to give the uh, the defense some as well 
first off, before I forget, uh, there was the announcement of the uh, the Senior Bowl, and two, who's going to be a part of that? You guys want to talk about that and uh, your overall impressions uh, of the defense? Noah Taylor, maybe start with him, uh, ACC linebacker of the week. What did you see? Yeah, well, uh, starting with the Senior Bowl, you had Charles Snowden, uh, you know, has really come on the past several weeks. So it's good to see him get an opportunity. I'm anxious to see how he'll be used in that Senior Bowl looking ahead towards his NFL prospects. Um, so that's that's intriguing. And then Tony Jan was the other recipient, which that wasn't a surprise. I think the Senior Bowl refs were talking him up at the time he transferred into Virginia from Central Michigan. And, you know, clearly, obviously, with him missing the rest of the game, UVA is not going to need him against Abilene Christian. But looking down the, down the line, they certainly need him to come back. So hopefully he'll be able to uh, uh, recuperate and get healthy. But, uh, yeah, it was good to see. I mentioned Charles Snowden stepping up. And I think coming into the season, the expectation were that was that the these the outside linebackers would really be dominant forces, and I don't know if we really saw that. We definitely didn't see that, you know, from Charles Snowden early on. But really, the past couple of weeks, they really had their fingerprints all over uh, the Virginia defense with Snowden's performance um, against uh, North Carolina, and then um, he had another sack against Louisville, and then Noah Taylor's interception return for a touchdown. And just his – it was good to see him running and that fast. Um, <laughs> and But before that, what I was more impressed with that was him coming off the edge, faking like he was going to rush, and then being quick enough to get back to that spot. And if you look – I mean, that was just very impressive. That kind of showed his – dynamic burst that he's got at the outside linebacker position and then of course once he got it he was gone so it's good to see those guys really start to emerge and as I mentioned uh, in an article um, I, you know I think really the the heart and soul has kind of been Zane Zandier and Nick Jackson for me for the defense so if these outside linebackers can really emerge and continue their high level of play that's going to really bode well for Virginia uh, down the stretch. Yeah Jackson and Zandier the two leading tacklers he had four different guys each with one sack, so four sacks total. Jackson, Zandier, Snowden, and Alonzo with the sacks. And there's a pretty big play early on in the, the second half where it was kind of an odd uh, call, I thought, at the time, uh, considering the field position, I guess, and the score. But big fourth down stop, uh, how big was that? Uh, do you think, Chris, did that really uh, change the momentum of the overall game there? I felt like it was big. Fourth and two, I think it was, right at midfield, but on their side of, of midfield. So they hadn't crossed yet. Looked like an option play. And he, the camera caught uh, Cunningham when he came off. The coach talking to him, like, why'd you hand that off? <laughs> like, but it's an option play. So, you know, he could have done either or. But I think they probably wanted him to bluff it and then just sprint <laughs> to the outside because that had worked so well for so many times in the game. But he handed it off and Virginia stuffed it. And then they go down and score. So 21 points off of turnovers. Noah Taylor's touchdown the Nick Grant fumble forced that they scored a touchdown after and then this technically not a turnover but turnover on downs right there at midfield they scored touchdowns after all of them that's the game right there that 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 changed everything and it put Louisville behind right so if they come out they get the ball first in the second half they go down and they score they if they get that play and they finish it off I mean I feel like it's totally different game but that one gets lost a little bit in the shuffle with everything else that happened but I thought it was a pretty big pretty big moment and Virginia came through and then the offense built on it well, and, uh, I texted you guys during the the game at some point with all those quarterback runs that, that you guys were, were referring to earlier um, by Louisville's quarterback. What did you see happen there? Because the run defense has been pretty consistently good throughout the year. Uh, it was a combination of things. A lot of those were designed runs. A lot of them felt like options where he could run or or throw. And then some of them were just break, contain, and take off, right? So it was a mix of things. But his speed seemed to give them trouble 
when, when he would get outside of the pocket. You know, if they could contain him, they did okay. But once he was out, <laughs> it wasn't a small gain most of the time. It was a big one, right, once he got out. So um, they tried to spy him. I don't, I don't think they had much success with that at times, even though they made an adjustment to try to stop him. You know, Coach Mendenhall kind of chalked it up in part to they prepared for Javion Hawkins, who has now opted out for the season, but didn't know that going into the Virginia game. And Tutu Atwell, the receiver, was also out. They had prepared for those two guys, but they're both out, and Louisville leans on Cunningham more. So maybe that was part of it, too. got caught off guard because a lot of those chunk yards were in the first half and then some in the second half. And, of course, the big turnover on one of the big chunk chunk plays. So, yeah, I just feel like his speed. And we've been concerned with perimeter – or at least I have – perimeter run defense all year long. So (laughs) he got to the edge and made them pay some. Yeah, 197 yards rushing for – Cunningham, and they only end up with 17 points. It's kind of that bend, don't break uh, defense that I like. <laughs> so uh, what do you think, Chris Horn, uh, when it comes to a guy like uh, Nusi Milani, true freshman, played 25 snaps in this game after only 18 all season. So what was he like as far as the recruiting trail, and, and what are we looking for him uh, from him in, in the future? For the present, I mean, with Richard Burney being out for the season and then uh, Ben Smiley, uh, the third, who's a redshirt freshman, he's out uh, or he's out with an injury as well. So Coach Mendenhall has mentioned several times in recent weeks that the defensive line is very thin. Mandy Alonzo, who made that big stuff on that uh, fourth and two, has been playing very solid football all year long. So is Juwan Briggs. And uh, Jameer Carter, you know, uh, he doesn't get talked about that much, I feel like, but he's really I mean, without he's added a lot of uh, depth as well, in addition to Nusi Milani. But yeah, Nusi Milani, you know, 6'6", 250 pounds. I feel like he comes in a lot on passing downs. And I think he's kind of got that more dynamic uh, aspect uh, to his game as from like maybe like a defensive tackle, defensive end uh, position, so he can kind of mix it up. And I, that's what he told me that the uh, the Virginia staff really liked about him in high school was that he was able to play they could see him play and, and or tackle. And then he told me that when he was watching film, he thought of himself as kind of the next Aaron Faumui who's uh, opted out for this year. So he's kind of got that extra athletic ability. He's got that, you know, passion for the game. And um, and clearly he's, uh, you know, needed this year as far as from a depth perspective. So, yeah, it seems like that's maybe, maybe we'll end up seeing more of those types of guys as far as that size uh, down the road for UVA on the defensive line. So 31-17, the final, UVA over Louisville around the ACC. Miami squeaks out a 25-24 win at Virginia Tech. North Carolina had to come back from a pretty big deficit, but managed to outscore Wake Forest 59-53. Then it was Notre Dame over Boston College 45-31. That was that trap game I thought might catch Notre Dame uh, resting on their laurels after the big win over Clemson, but they, they were able to pull away late there from B.C., Florida State goes to NC State, loses by 16. So the Wolfpack continue their winning ways. And then the Pitt-Georgia Tech game postponed. So all in all, guys, Hokies lose, who's win? My Missouri Tigers didn't have to play Georgia because of COVID concerns. So all in all, it was a good uh, – they didn't get shellacked by the Bulldogs. But we'll see if that game even gets made up at the end of the year. We're sort of running out of weeks here. But looks like the college football playoff folks might be amenable to moving that uh, big game back. We'll see how that all – goes but we've got some recruiting news to talk about and we'll preview the uh, next opponent for the who's abilene christian that's all coming up next here on the saber.com podcast it's your number one online source as a virginia fan the saber.com 
right back into it here on the saber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman joined by Chris Wright and Chris Horn. And let's talk a little bit about Abilene Christian. I'm not sure we have a whole lot to say about them, but uh, they have struggled. Last I looked, they had one win uh, on the season, but uh, kind of a business as usual approach, I guess, for the Who's. Yeah, they're a 35 to 39 point favorite right now. So the questions from the media early in the week, you know, how, how do you stay focused? How do you deal with an opponent you've never heard of? Like, and the answer was business as usual. We play nameless, faceless opponents every week, that sort of thing. Uh, they talked about how Tuesday and Wednesdays are always extremely hard practices at Virginia, no matter who's on the schedule. So the, the older veteran guys, the Mandy Alonzos and, and guys like that were like, yeah, business as usual, stay focused, ignore the opponent. This is how we prepare. Make sure you bust your butt on Tuesday, Wednesday and kind of go from there. But honestly, beyond that, don't know a whole lot. Coach Mendenhall said, well, coached. A couple guys jump out on, on video. He didn't name them. He just said a couple guys <laughs> jump out on video. He said that he's from the West, so he's at least more familiar with, with teams like this than some people might be. But the rest of us are kind of like, wow, 35-point spread and don't even know where this – you know, don't, don't even think about the school or who they play or anything like that. So, yeah, business as usual uh, in terms of staying focused and, and hopefully just take care of business and, and get through this week. Yeah, it's up to 39.5 here uh, when I'm looking at through uh, ESPN. But, uh, well, we get the Who's to a 4-4 four and four record on the year, and you don't want to look ahead, of course. Uh, Florida State on the road and then home to Boston College before the uh, Tech game to close out the year. The remaining game's on the schedule for the Who's. So let's talk a little recruiting, guys, as uh, UVA picked up a commitment last week. What can you tell us about him? Yeah, Michael Diata out of Tennessee is the uh, latest commitment for uh, UVA football, commitment number 22 in the class. And as I mentioned with uh, talking about uh, Nusi Milani, it was kind of interesting that, you know, Coach Mendenhall gave a little bit of a tidbit of recruiting news, I guess, uh, in terms of who they may be looking for in the future as far as size on the defensive line. Roughly you know, about 6'6", 250 pounds, and that's what, that's what Michael is listed as. So they're certainly, if the past two classes are any indication, that's kind of the direction that they are going, which is interesting. It'll be interesting to see, you know, exactly what they're looking to, to get from that. Maybe it's a little bit more dynamic uh, ability, as I mentioned earlier. Obviously, height and uh, more length on the defensive line. Uh, and Michael kind of fits right into that um, uh, that mold. Now, he's a, he's a guy who uh, you would classify as your typical kind of sleeper prospect. So fortunately for him that he was able to play some games in his senior season and his recruitment kind of ticked up this fall uh, Memphis came through with an offer Vanderbilt uh, Virginia was part of that pack um, that came through with uh, with offers uh, in the in the fall and uh, again uh, he fits that mold I think he's the guy that Virginia is going to bring in and be able to you know obviously he'll come in red shirt they'll be able to uh, develop him along the defensive line uh, but when you look at him uh, Hugh Laughlin who's also kind of matches that size uh, 6'6", 280-pound prospect out of Georgia who's committed in this class. And then Nusi from last, last year's class. And uh, Sue Agunlier, who's uh, a true freshman as well, has got a number, uh, number 71. Uh, you know, they all kind of fit that, that mold. So it seems like UVA is, you know, definitely going in that, in that direction. And, you know, another, you know, just on, on his highlights, he's got pretty good athletic ability, it looks like, and, and good size. So good, you know, good addition, the guy that they can get in and mold and, and add depth to the defensive, defensive line. Well, that's another thing as I'm, as you're talking there, I'm thinking back to those Nebraska and Oklahoma teams of the eighties, <laughs> where it was, they'd have a whole recruiting class. They would just redshirt all of them because they were so good. And they'd, 
that would just feed the pipeline there, you know, for so long. What's kind of the the Bronco strategy or or philosophy when it comes to redshirting? Because it does seem like this guy we were just talking about and and kind of in, that instant playing time. Uh, how big a, a factor is that these days for recruits? It's a little different these days because it you know taking out the that this year is a p- pandemic year and that you know uh, on a typical year you you now have the ability to play four games and still keep your red shirt so you can still get some playing time. I think what we've seen is that you know when Bronco arrived there wasn't a whole lot in the cupboard, so he's had to play some freshmen. So I think we're going to get a much better idea in the coming years of exactly what uh, what his preference is. But uh, you know I think he's shown that he's willing. You know, Lavelle Davis Jr. is a great example. If if there's a need and 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 you're playing well, he's he's going to play you. But at the same time, I think especially along those lines, I think the ideal scenario, you know, offensive and defensive lines, is to keep bringing in wave after wave to where you can redshirt those guys year in year out, and that way, you know, you're able to kind of get that succession plan that uh, Coach Mendenhall has, has spoken about um, quite a bit, and kind of just keep that keep adding to that depth. And especially along the lines, you know, believe it or not, you know, some of the, the offensive line is one of the most hit or miss positions in recruiting um, as well. And that is probably similar for the, the defensive line. So, yeah, again, I think the ideal scenario on the line is to bring those guys in and have them red shirt and you know, get in that UVA strength and conditioning program and uh, learn what, what, it, what it takes and learn behind those guys and, and kind of wait their turn kind of. So what else would you say would be on the wish list then for this recruiting class? Probably secondary help first and foremost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they could. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly, I mean, I think it is kind of interesting. I, I think they've recruited, you know, at, at defensive backs, you know, guys who can play multiple positions. But I know on our message board, uh, uh, there was a question just wondering, should we go for just faster, speedy guys who are basically cornerbacks? And uh, you know, they have one of those guys, Micah Gaffney out of Alabama in this class. But and then they have William Simpkins the third, who's another kind of a, a bigger sized cornerback um, uh, in the in the mold as well in the in the mix as well. But yeah, so it's kind of interesting. But I, I think they're looking. They seem to be you know just judging by the the offers that are out there that they're in the market for maybe another receiver, another playmaker on offense. And you know I think certainly upgrading the speed at either defensive back or uh, receiver would be a good idea. And as far as basketball recruiting goes, Chris Wright, Tane Murray signed last week. So what's up next for him? Yeah, he's officially in the fold now, has signed his letter of intent. So it's good to get that settled. Up next for him, Australian NBL season. So he signed with the professional team, New Zealand Breakers, but has not taken a salary. So he'll be able to retain his eligibility that way. Right now, you know, Australia's leagues look like they're on pace to play and things. We'll see what kind of playing time he gets. He may not play a lot, but the ability to play pro ball without taking a salary uh, should help him develop. So it'll be interesting to see if we can see any of those games and if he gets much playing time, all that sort of stuff coming up next. Yeah, we don't have to go to flowsports.com or something to, to find those games down there. <laughs> no, that's just the the opener with, with Maine. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how is he going to fit then on the roster if – nobody sticks around for that extra eligibility year. Does it get a little complicated or how does that all kind of sort out? There's space for him. And even if somebody were to return, I don't think everyone's returning. (laughs) I think Hauser's gone. I think Huff's gone. They need to start their earnings clock. We said that before. So, so there is space for him, even if everyone else were to come back. But I think Virginia would figure that out even with the extra year of eligibility, because 
if there's one program that can get donors to to donate what's necessary scholarship funding wise, Coach Bennett's program can pretty much get what he wants from donors. So not not a concern there. Virginia fans, message board wise, have started throwing out every shooter that's ever played for Coach Bennett <laughs> as a cop. Um, anyone from from Joe Harris to Kyle Guy, maybe even early Clay Thompson, that sort of thing. All of those names have come up because he can really shoot it. Uh, on the videos the that are out there, you know, the highlight videos when you don't ever miss that sort of thing. But his his touch, his form, his release, all of those remind uh, fans of his kind of the classic Tony Bennett shooter. So yeah, him running off screens, him spotting up, creating space for for others or being a replacement guy when, when a big rolls to the rim, that sort of thing. Uh, he, he definitely could be a floor spacer and a threat um, to play out of that because that's what made Guy and Harris so good is they're not just shooters. They could play out of it. They could one dribble pull up or one dribble, you know, drop it off, make an assist, that sort of thing. Murray seems to fit that mold. Well, and then as far as the class of 22, the class of 2022 goes, Isaac McNeely. I hadn't really heard his name, but I guess UVA is in his final eight. Uh, Chris Horn, can you give us an update on him? Maybe a little bit of a surprise in terms of how early he narrowed his list, um, just given everything that's going on with, uh, with, you know, the lack of being able to see schools and things like that. And Virginia is one of the schools that, at least to my knowledge, as of before this podcast, has not extended the scholarship offer to him. First of all, he's a six-four guard, and he's kind of fits that. He's kind of got that dynamic ability as well, kind of that versatile, not like exactly like Tane Murray or Kyle Guy, but kind of he's got you know similarities. I think in terms of being able to shoot the ball, and he's athletic and get to the basket. He has visited UVA twice, and he's, you know, just by all indications, uh, he really likes it and feels like Virginia would be a good fit, which is the reason, the you know, why, obviously, that UVA is still in the mix. But again, UVA has not offered, and at this point, it's kind of it seems to be a holding pattern in terms of the 2022 class, which is which is kind of interesting, and I wonder if the, the early signing period ends on Wednesday. Maybe we'll see some more activity uh, pick up then. But I know Coach Bennett commented on just the inability to see players and, and in person and, and be able to evaluate the way he would like to. I wonder if maybe he's just going to wait and see what happens in the spring. Uh, again, that's when transfer season comes up. So that could be extremely important uh, this coming uh, this coming spring and see, you know, who comes available and, and who you know, UVA may have interested in, have interest in and vice versa. So, you know, currently, again, I think UVA is kind of in a holding pattern, but he's a prospect that fans certainly know about. He Again, he's been to Virginia uh, several times for visits and seems extremely high on Virginia, but at, at, and UVA seems high on him, but just as of this point, hasn't pulled the trigger on an official offer for him. But yeah, good player. He's got offers from Indiana, West Virginia, Purdue, Louisville, you know, those those teams have made his final eight. Kentucky's recruiting him, but has an offer, but they're in his final eight as well. So um, definitely a good player. Well, and some big news out of the NBA regarding uh, the former who tied Jerome. Looks like he's going to Oklahoma City as Chris Paul is getting traded to the Phoenix Suns. But uh, Ricky Rubio, also part of that trade. So, of course, Ty was kind of behind him in the pecking order with Phoenix his uh, rookie year. Uh, had to deal with some injuries, but he's part of four guys and a draft pick going to Oklahoma City while uh, Chris Paul and another player go from OKC to the Phoenix Suns. Big happenings there in the NBA uh, with the opening of the trading uh, period leading into the big uh, NBA draft, which hopefully Mamadi Diakite will be a part of on Wednesday. So we'll talk some more hoops coming up in the next segment here. And then a little ACDC as we close out this edition of the Saber.com podcast. 
Time to talk a little bit more hoops here on the Saber.com podcast. Jeff Sweatman alongside Chris Wright and Chris Horn of the Saber.com. Now, some breaking news from the NCAA tournament world. It looks like they're going to try to do the entire tournament in Indianapolis in the surrounding area. What do you guys make of that? Starting with you, Chris Wright. Smart. The bubble. Um, that they need to do everything possible to have the tournament this year in terms of finances for colleges. Right. They cannot afford to lose out on that payday two years in a row. So making moves now to ensure that that happens as best you can is absolutely the smart thing to do. You know, you can make arguments that other cities are better to host it, but in Indianapolis was already the final four site. Indianapolis is the home of the NCAA. You do have the Pacers U.S. You know, Fieldhouse Bank, U.S. Bank Fieldhouse available. You have IUPUI right there in Indianapolis, potentially available. Butler right there in Indianapolis, potentially available. And then you got a couple other schools, an NAIA school and a either Division II or Division III school that have their gyms that you could even play in if necessary. So yes, like a bubble like Orlando or Las Vegas might be better suited for a bubble. But in terms of the NCAA already dealing logistically with Indianapolis on a day-to-day basis and on a Final Four basis, I think that's why it's there. And certainly smart. Get ahead of it so that you have a plan. And it sounds like there will be a delay that normally wouldn't be, you know, normally it's selection Sunday and then games on Tuesday for, for the play-in games, Tuesday and Wednesday. And then the tournament starts on Thursday. There might be a little bit more of a delay this time to get all the teams to Indianapolis, get them all quarantined for X amount of time, get tested, all that sort of thing, and then play the tournament all in one site. I still don't like the the first four thing. I know they do it for money, but uh, <laughs> it just adds a whole level of, uh, complications and you know Dayton Ohio I guess has been a good spot to have those those early early games uh, the past few years but kudos and uh, let's hope that can work there in Indianapolis for everybody so we've broken down the, the roster the past few episodes in terms of the who's this year so let's do superlatives so taking out the the big three of Clark Huff and Hauser who would be your pick for well Shaq calls them uh, the others <laughs> when he does his analysis of the NBA, but, uh, you know, UVA player of the year in terms of the role players having, um, the most consistent 2020 slash 21. Uh, I mean, that's a tough one. And I think that's what makes this, this team so, uh, interesting to me is that outside of those three, it's tough to say, okay, I feel great about, yeah, that, that I think there are a lot of candidates of like guys who could do this or could do that, but there's, you know, in terms of guys that, you feel like great about, hey, they're on the cusp of really having a, a breakout big time year. You're not sure. And that's not saying that there's, again, I think there are a lot of talented guys that could definitely do that. But in terms of being able to be consistent with it, I'm going to go with Casey Morsell, though, as far as most important, because he, he's got that year in the program. So he knows the, the system, the defensive system. And again, he's a guy who coming out of high school was known for his ability to make shots and, and, and to contribute. Uh, pretty heavily on the offensive end. So he's a guy, again, with the experience, and he's he's a he's a tough kid, a guy that I think is going to be very important and could be the key to the UVA's uh, how much success they end up having this year, I think. My pick is uh, Abdul Rahim, and then I'm going to throw it to Chris Wright. That's, that's it. Uh, no analysis there. <laughs> I'm just hopeful, very hopeful for him. I'm super excited to see him play. Yep, for me, it's Reese Beekman. Uh, okay. I think he is going to – to play a lot. I think he's going to be important. And I think, I, I think he's ready to roll. So when 
you know, we get to January or February, fingers crossed, and Virginia fans are going, man, like, this is like Cali Cool London Parentes, or like, oh, yeah, this is so, like, smooth, smooth operator like Ty Jerome. He's going to have that kind of early vibe for fans. I just think he he fits the fits the bill for what Virginia wants, what Virginia needs, and being ready to do it. Well, and like we talked about before, what, he won four straight state titles, <laughs> the team he's been on. So that, uh, you know, certain kids, they just seem to to have that winning uh, mentality. And I think Ty Jerome sort of had that too coming in, didn't he? Those bona fides where his, his team was good year after year after year. Yeah, that, that's one thing Coach Bennett mentioned about when he spotted Ty Jerome on the AAU circuit is that he was his teams were kind of in, always in the mix and uh, he, was, he didn't back down from anybody. And I think, yeah, Reese Beekman is a similar way. And I think, yeah, to Chris's point, I think he's more London Parentes in terms of then, you know, Ty Jerome had that fire, whereas Parentes was really, uh, you know, they're both under control, uh, terrific point guards. But in terms of, you know, Parentes is kind of was laid back and, you know, it was hard really to see <laughs> sometimes the emotion. I think Beekman's going to be kind of more like that. But again, I think the results has, has spoken for themselves. And he's known for being able to control the pace of the game and, I think that will translate well. And I think, yeah, I think he's going he's in store for a good season as well. So who do you guys think is most likely to uh, lead the team in three point shooting? Sam Hauser. <laughs> um, everybody else is too streaky for me. I think Sam Hauser is a consistent shooter. Release looks the same all the time, very confident shooter and can shoot in a variety of ways. So I think his ability to pull up, his ability to catch and shoot, his ability to come off screen and shoot, pick and pop and shoot. Yeah, the, the, Sam Hauser, both in, in number made and in percentage. I'm going to do it both ways. He's taking both categories. Say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think, Chris Horn, on that on that front? I am not going in any other direction. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Hauser, Hauser for sure. And, I, 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 you know, I know Coach Bennett's excited to have him. He's been recruiting. He, you know, he was recruiting him in high school, just missed out on him for Marquette. And, uh, yeah, so it's going to be fun to watch him, I think, this year. Well, I'm going to go, you know, since you two guys go for the odds on favorite, I'm going to pick the the dark horse, uh, Wilden Tensai. I think he might lead the team percentage wise and overall number because he's going to be the just the marksman. That's all he's going to do on offense for the Who's. That's my stupid prediction anyway. <laughs> and that'll be a good thing. I don't mean that as a bad thing at all. He'll just be the marksman that, that can just uh, set up out there and feed off of the other guys. So, who do you think will lead the team in rebounding? This is an interesting question. A few different candidates for this one, maybe. Chris, right? This may be an underdog. Uh, oh, Sam Hauser. I think Sam oh, Hauser. Sam- okay, Hauser again. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I think he he did. Uh, I think he averaged, I believe, seven boards a game in his final season at Marquette. So, yeah, I, I, I think he's physical. He's experienced. He's savvy. I think he's going to be the one that uh, steps up and leads the team in rebounding this year. It's normally not a big just Virginia system wise, it's usually a hybrid like Braxton key or, or Diakite or somebody like that. This year's going to be different. It's going to be Jay Huff. Uh, and I think, especially if you do per 100 possessions, that sort of thing, it'll be Jay Huff, but I think he may even lead in, in average per game. Is he going to be a double, double machine? You think a little hard to do that in Virginia system. Yeah. To be honest, like they spread the rebounds out a little bit, but I think he'll be in that 10 to 12, 10 to 14 point range, depending on, how the rest of it gets spread out. And then maybe seven-ish will probably lead the team. So if he's at, at seven, that, then he, he'll be in contention with Hauser and, and maybe a McCoy or somebody like that as a dark horse to be in that neighborhood of six or seven rebounds per, per game. And that usually leads Virginia. 
Yeah, Beekman, speaking of Beekman, was a pretty good rebounder in high school as well. So he could be maybe a, a guy to watch that averages a little bit more than uh, people think. But I think rebounding in general is one of the questions about Virginia coming into the season. I mean, they had, uh, you know, Braxton Key was such a so quick off the floor, such a great rebounder. You know, they obviously uh, uh, DeAndre Hunter the year before that. And then, you know, Mamadi there, you know, those guys are gone. So that's definitely an, a question I have as far as who's going to really step up in that regard. Well, I feel like rebounding is one of those parts of the game the casual fan may not pay that much attention to or, or care that much about, but it is fascinating. What is Tony Bennett's philosophy? I haven't really thought about this in terms of the pack line because you do have, obviously, a lot of guys packed in the lane there. So does he care too much who gets the rebounds or, you know, what the philosophy obviously is to keep the other team from running out and getting any kind of fast break opportunities because everybody goes back and the offensive boards are not really an issue for, for the who's in a lot of times, but how does the defensive rebounding philosophy shake down? It, it's usually, at, at least in part, bigs keep the, the biggest rebounding threats because let's face it, the post, the big guys usually lead teams in rebounding, keep them off of the glass. That's your first priority. And then go get it if you can. And then the guards are, the word coach Bennett uses is spear, get in there and spear a rebound, right? So fly in there. If you'll watch closely, they're usually kind of covering an area within where they are for the pack line to go get that rebound. So you'll get that wing to elbow area on both sides and kind of that free throw area that the guards are taking care of. And that it, it's moving. There's a lot of moving parts, so it's not exact, but it's usually those guys are lurking to go spear rebounds. And there have been good guard rebounders here the entire time. Zaglinski was good at it. Joe Harris, Cal Guy, Devin Hall. I mean, you can go right, right down the list. Even Kihei Clark very good rebounder by average for, for his position. So yeah, definitely part of the scheme is have the guards go spear some of them. Yeah, that that's interesting. And um, what do you guys think about person most likely to lead the team in, uh, in bench minutes, like six man of the year type of thing. Uh, Chris Horn, you, you want to take that one first? Yeah, this is where I think one of the freshmen is going to emerge as uh, the sixth man. And I've, I, it's tough for me. I keep going back and forth between Abdur Rahim and Beekman, but I think one of those guys is going to emerge as the key guy off the bench. I'll go with Abdur Rahim because he can kind of fill multiple roles. Um, but of course I can easily see him uh, earning a starting role as well, but I think he's the guy that I think can come in again. I think he can fill multiple roles and he can kind of bring some instant offense. Um, I think we've discussed before his ability to get to the basket, uh, to get to the foul line, um, that all-around offensive game, I think, is going to be something that uh, UVA will welcome off the bench That kind to have that kind of spark of offense. I guess in theory, my answer should be Reese Beekman because he's not going to start, and I do think he's going to be the other's player of the year. I, I was leaning Jabri Abdul-Rahim for everything Chris just said, right? Free throw line, get his own shot, long, lanky, can create for others a little bit. The name that might jump up here, though, is Thomas Waldo Sensai. If he doesn't start, for whatever reason, if things just shuffle out where he becomes instant offense, microwave guy off the bench, three-point sniper, and that Billy Barron, uh, Justin Anderson kind of way early in their careers, then it you know, it could be an older Thomas Walter Tensai where he just comes in and lights it up at times if he's not in the starting lineup. And, and that kind of thing remains to be seen. Will they go with experience in the lineup, you know, Marcel and Walter Tensai or Walter Tensai and Statman, and then have the younger guys come off the bench? Some of that will determine this answer. So if he's coming off the bench, he could be a contender for this. Oh, one thing I uh, 
neglected to mention we were talking about rebounding. Is that a factor for why a team like North Carolina has such fits with with Tony Bennett teams? It seems like regardless of personnel, because their offensive philosophy, right, is just to play volleyball, throw it up there, get the rebound, you know, and uh, those follow shots are what kill you usually with Carolina and UVA doesn't allow a whole lot of those second shots, do they? Yeah, you're, you're on it. If, if a team has a high offensive rebounding percentage, meaning they get a lot of rebounds off their own misses and they're successful, meaning they score a high amount of second chance points, those teams, A, can give Virginia trouble. So sometimes those are the type of teams that give Virginia trouble. But B, if they're not successful with it, they struggle mightily overall, <laughs> right? So Florida State's one of those teams that's been like that at times. Uh, Carolina, for sure. There are some others uh, over the years that have been like that. Clemson at times. Virginia keeps them off the glass and suddenly they're, they're swimming in the forties, you know, rolling their eyes, like, man, tonight's been tough. <laughs> well, uh, who do you think could be into the, uh, the 20 point club offensively speaking uh, at least one game of 20 plus points. Who do you think could, could get in there? That's a good question. I, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to say Morsell. I think Casey Morsell's got okay. the, again, he's got the offensive game. I think given his struggles last year, I kind of understand the apprehension um, that some may have, but I think he's got the offensive game to be able to do that. <laughs> I will say. I'm raising my hand as being apprehensive, but uh, I can see that. Yeah. <laughs> I can't see that, Jeff. <laughs> sorry, sorry, we can see a... you raising your hand, but the listeners can check, check the Zoom replay for that one, folks. <laughs> Hauser so will be in the right. 20 point club. Hauser, right. yes. Huff will make it into the 20 point club. Okay. Walla Tensai will make it into the 20 point club. All three of those guys have shown in their careers that they can do that. Clark, maybe. Marcel, maybe. Right. So I think there's five guys that maybe could do it once. And that's just interesting, right? Because this, yeah. this team is better offensively than last year, but a lot of the pieces are the same. It's just interesting to me because I think there are numerous individuals that could sneak into that club by the end of the year. Hold on, now I kind of look stupid because I thought that was just kind of like, you know, a guy that you wouldn't expect, 20 oh. point. So Hauser, yes. Okay, yeah, now okay. I look foolish for not saying, yeah, Hauser, absolutely. <laughs> Huff, uh, for sure. Uh, Kia, yeah, if he gets it going uh, as well. And uh, I think we've seen Walter Tensai. I mean, yeah, if he gets hot, I mean, uh, look out. So, but again, yeah, obviously I'm putting a lot of chips in for more sell. So I'm hoping he doesn't let me down this year. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm going to predict uh, at least one triple-double game where Jay Huff gets at least 10 points, 10 rebounds, and 10 blocks. At least one game. Come on, Jabraham Lincoln, he's got to do it. It's certainly possible. He could easily go 10-10-10. That's not that far-fetched, honestly. Well, very good, guys. Uh, I think we've covered uh, hoops thoroughly for this week. Anything else to uh, to add? Oh, I wanted to mention and throw this out to you guys. You probably saw the Rick Patino blurb. Uh, the other day, he is back at Iona this year after a year or two over in Greece or whatever he was doing uh, post Louisville debacle. And he seems to think, and he's had some trouble in his program. So this is factoring into his statement, I'm sure. But uh, the COVID stuff that uh, he thinks teams just aren't ready, that we're rushing all of this and they need to have a May madness instead of March, just push everything back. And let's take our time with this. And the protocols are just too intense. The guys are going to have to be sitting out and all of that sort of stuff. What do you make of that? I waffle a little bit on this one. Obviously, the climate nationally, cases are up in all 50 states. So that's significant. Now, here's why I waffle. Football has been playing the entire fall with postponements, no, no doubt about it. But 
mostly successful. I think the ACC's played 65 games or something like that. We saw the soccer teams get a couple postponements, but still get all their games in. We saw a couple other fall sports get a couple postponements, but get most of their games in. So we've seen like a track record of, well, this is doable. They're tested three times a week. And certainly if you look at UVA's football team, if you follow the protocols and you do all the things you're supposed to do, you have a pretty high success rate of playing the games you're supposed to play. So I'm torn on that. I think it could go either way where a bunch of games don't get played for whatever reason in in various conferences. There's no wiggle room. They put out a schedule that (laughs) it's just like a normal schedule, just a few less games. So they didn't build in enough wiggle room for me. So I'm wondering if that will lead to a cancellation or a postponement or something like that, because there's nowhere to move it. Cause I don't think teams are going to play back to backs or something like that. So yeah. So yeah, maybe, maybe it ends up becoming that anyway, like whether they plan to do it in May or not, maybe it just ends up being that because of of the circumstances. So we'll see, but uh, yeah, I know he's advocating for it. Um, I don't see that the direction they're moving in currently. If you look at all these other pieces, starting this segment with, we're planning to have everything in Indianapolis in March. There's your first clue that that's not, they're not thinking about May Madness. Considering the source on that one, maybe with Patino, I'm sure he's probably the last guy the NCAA wants to hear any kind of commentary from, right? That That's probably a guarantee, I would say. But as far as, uh, no, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with everything Chris said, I think. And I think everything's up in the air. I mean, maybe the idea is kind of, you know, they're going to try to start you know, early and, and finish in March, but maybe the wiggle room would be May and then they could, you know, move things, shift things back. Um, uh, if, if depending on how things, how things go, you know, another thing is, you know, the, the vaccine news, who knows, you know, if that's going to change anything and if that comes out and, and they're approved and, and everything that maybe, uh, maybe Patino would have a point there and things would work out even better, um, to, to do that. So, yeah, again, just, I mean, uh, in, in this scenario, who knows what, what, what's going to happen next. Kind of like Coach Mendenhall says, you kind of wake up, wake up uh, expecting something to be, you know, something else to be happening and kind of wake up uh, on your toes. Yeah. Well, have you guys heard anything about or what are the plans for ACC tournament? Are they still going to do all of these conference tournaments before March Madness? I guess they would have to, right? In terms of trying to make money, there's no reason for them to not try to do it. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, there's a little band called ACDC that has a new album out, believe it or not. It's been almost exactly 40 years since Back in Black. So we'll discuss that in the music segment next as we turn the tables here on the Saber.com podcast. The Front Porch is a nonprofit roots music organization, and we uh, connect everyone through music. I like the way that the Front Porch encourages people to, to sort of engage with their community and sort of enlarge the community. Everybody's included and that's really what the word community is about, you know, making sure that everybody has their chance to have a good time and and participate in that something. All right, welcome back. Saber editor Chris Wright in the turning the table segment, do a little music at the end and uh, this was mentioned on the message board briefly, but I didn't see a long thread about it. ACDC New album out. You mentioned going into the the segment break there. Almost forty years since Back in Black. So, what do you think? Have you listened to it? Any, anything jump out off the top to you? Like, it's another great addition to their. Uh, they do what they do, and they they do it well. You know, it's they're not reinventing the wheel by any means. Uh, maybe streamlining the wheel a little bit. Most of the songs clock in in about three minutes. Brendan O'Brien, who's produced their last record or two. Previous to this one is back uh, in the production chair. He's worked famously with with Pearl Jam and 
a bunch of uh, grunge era bands mostly. Uh, he's done a little bit of work with Springsteen too, but uh, he, he just has a knack for capturing those crisp, clean guitars and the, the rhythm set. I mean, the whole album just sounds fantastic from a production standpoint. And the album really, it's a tribute to Malcolm uh, Young, the older brother. Of course, everybody knows Angus with his uh, school uniform and the little hat that he wears and, and all of that. It's <laughs> become just one of the uh, most recognizable ensembles in, in rock and roll. And just when you think they, there are no more riffs that those guys could possibly come up with, they have 12 on here. And apparently he went through the vaults of riffs that he and his brother uh, Malcolm had, had come up with. And so some of these are older songs that they've then reworked. The front man, Brian Johnson, folks are probably wondering, is he on this album or did he, what happened to him? Cause he had to quit touring a few years ago. And folks may remember Axl Rose stepped in and was the singer for, for ACDC to kind of complete their tour they were doing previous to this album four or five years ago. It's because he had this issue where he uh, had serious hearing loss, but in the last couple of years, their technology has advanced and he, he's worked with a doctor that it's been kind of a miracle recovery where he's able to not only hear, but, but sing again. It sounds like he hasn't aged a day, you know, sounds like the old uh, Brian Johnson. So, uh, you know, going through the, the loss of, uh, of Malcolm and being such a, an important part, kind of a secret weapon of the group, his funeral in 2017 is kind of when the, the fires got started of these guys thinking, hey, maybe we can put the band back together and, and really do one more album in, in kind of tribute to him. So as it so happens, about 40 years since Back in Black, and, and here we go. That, that whole album, when you think about it, Bon Scott passed away, I think, in early 1980. And then like a month later, they named Brian Johnson the new singer. And then a month after that, they had Back in Black out, which became their, you know, one of the all-time best-selling albums. So... That whole so timeline is pretty crazy to me when you think back to that 1980 kind of second phase of ACDC that kicked off there. So, so it kind of ties some of that in. He said in an interview about this new album, Brian Johnson, that he, like the spirit of Malcolm Young that he feels the most was in the song Through the Mist of Time. Gives him goosebumps, apparently, just kind of feeling his presence there or whatever. So that, that kind of ties in what you're saying there, like a tribute album of sorts uh, to a late band member. Did you hear that track? Yeah, I mean, that that's one of the more, you know, straightforward, uh, sentimental songs, if you will, if there is such a thing as a sentimental ACDC song, but you do get that from that one in particular. And the rest of them are, are just filled with those, just the classic double entendres. Wait, what, what are they? They're not really talking about that, are they? They're talking about the, you know, it's, there's a, there's a good dose of humor in there as usual with, with ACDC and man, I mean, for any band to just rest on their laurels and just never, you know, make another note. And they, they could certainly be at the top of the list that they did not have to do anything in the last 10 or 15 or even 20 years, but man, they just keep album after album. When they do decide to uh, put their minds to it, they, they still mine that same territory and they, they do it better than pretty much anybody has ever done it. So honestly, this track list sounds like it could be triple crown horse racing names, right? <laughs> yeah. Witches spell that could easily be a horse's name. Demon fire, yes. wild reputation, 
Code Red. I mean, like, <laughs> I just, just read this down the list of, of Kentucky Derby. Names right. I mean, it, it just feels like title. a horse racing album based on some of those titles to me. I don't. I don't know why that that jumps out to me. That clearly you don't think of ACDC when you think of horse racing, but right. Well, um, just thing, some of those names. Yeah, yeah. And the thing too with these guys is in this genre too, a lot of times is maligned um, for whatever reason by the critics. And but this this album actually gets four stars from allmusic.com. So and it's I've seen, you know, various people in my Facebook feed that have been pleasantly surprised. And it's like, whoa, there's a, first of all, there is a new ACDC album. And then second of all, it's it's pretty dang good. So uh, and a whole new generation was introduced to them through the Iron Man 2 soundtrack, which I've got the uh cd version of here but it, it kind of served as an acdc greatest hits which they never really had had up to that point and for whatever reason iron man wanted to use some of their songs and the timing just uh, came together for that that second iron man movie soundtrack to be all acdc songs so we've commented and present <laughs> we've commented before about there's a quite a bit of musical knowledge among the posters on our message board yes but some Virginia fans who maybe aren't as musically inclined or, or know music as well are familiar with ACDC and maybe don't even know it. <laughs> and that's because Virginia uses it a, a ton uh, in their soundtrack stuff for, for games, right? Yeah, Thunderstruck is the big one for who's fans. And it's not unique to UVA. I think there are several other colleges that use that. It's kind of become like a Seven Nation Army is the new Thunderstruck uh, where Lots of pro teams use it, lots of college teams, but that's about as good as it gets. And I remember that being a, a big comeback song for them in, in 1990, right before I got to uh, University of Missouri, we would just crank that thing uh, in the dorms back then because it was like, wow, you know, these guys hadn't made a good album for a handful of years. And then Thunderstruck really brought them to my generation to make them relevant to us. And here they are in 2020, still making uh, quality music. <laughs> So we'll, we'll test the, the knowledge of our, our corner board folks that contribute to these threads. So maybe we'll get them to rank ACDC songs or albums or something yeah, like that to see yeah. how they would do it. Yep. Um, get their take on the new album. Like I said, I saw one thread on it, but it wasn't very long. So we'll, we'll just see. Chime in on that thread. Subscribe. Follow us. Listen to the, to the podcast. Tell your friends. Share it on social media. All those sort of things. We put clips up on social media as well, where we take a little segment out of here and, and drop it. So like those, share those, <laughs> spread the word on the podcast for us. Uh, the more listeners we have, the better, of course. And in the meantime, we'll learn something about Abilene Christian on the football field. And obviously next week, when, when we're recording this podcast, Thanksgiving week, we'll know what happened with Mamadi Diakite in the draft and basketball season scheduled to start. So lots to kind of look forward to on next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening.